Greetings, fellow humans. Katrina here. Quick disclaimer, I'm professional, not your professional. Anything I'm about to say should not be taken as medical, legal, or otherwise advice. This podcast is purely for education and amusement. That is it. Disclaimer over. So I thought I'd talk today about what I don't know about the four Fs. If you haven't heard of the four Fs, that's totally fine. Most people have only heard of the two, the fight or flight, but there's actually fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. We'll kind of go through that, and I'm going to read today from Pete Walker's Complex PTSD, and that's going to be the very end of Chapter 1. So the very end of Chapter 1, you'll find the four Fs, and here we go. So the fight or flight response that I mentioned is an innate automatic response to danger in all human beings. A more complete and accurate description of this instinct is the fight-flight-freeze-fawn response. The complex nervous system wiring of this response allows a person in danger to react in four totally different ways. A fight response is triggered when a person suddenly responds aggressively to something threatening. A flight response is triggered when a person responds to a perceived threat by fleeing or symbolically by launching into hyperactivity. A freeze response is triggered when a person, realizing resistance is futile, gives up, numbs out into dissociation, and or collapses as if accepting the inevitability of being hurt. And finally, this is the one that even if you've heard of the first three Fs, you probably haven't heard of the fourth F, and that's the fawn response. So a fawn response is triggered when a person responds to a threat by trying to be pleasing or helpful in order to appease and forestall an attacker. This fourfold response potential will hereto be referred to, like I said, as the four Fs. So traumatized children often over-gravitate to one of those response patterns in order to survive. And as time passes, these four modes become elaborated into entrenched defensive structures that are similar to narcissist, that would be fight, obsessive-compulsive, that would be flight, dissociative, that would be freeze, or codependent, that would be fawn, defenses. So these structures help children survive their horrific childhoods, but leave them very limited and narrow in how they respond to life. Even worse, some may remain locked in these patterns of adulthood when they no longer need to rely so heavily on one primary response pattern. So it's actually really important to understand the variances in childhood uh, abuse and neglect patterns, birth order, and genetic predispositions result in people polarizing to their particular 4F type. So then the next section, I really want to talk about some examples. So Pete Walker gives examples of how children are driven into these defenses by traumatizing parents. The four children in the vignette I'm about to read match the four basic types of trauma survivors. So here we go. The names. One guy named Bob. He's going to be the fighter. He's going to be the narcissistic. Carol. Flight. She's got obsessive compulsive tendencies. We've got Maud. She's going to be the freeze person, dissociative, and dissociation is just where you kind of feel out of your body or when you're numb or when you're not connected, your mind and your body. Easier uh, explained than experienced, I would say. And then finally, Sean, who would be the fawn or codependent. So here's the four Fs Fs, in a complex post-traumatic stress-inducing family. Carol was the scapegoat of her family. 
Narcissistic and borderline parents typically choose at least one child to be the designated family scapegoat. Scapegoating is the process by which a bully offloads and externalizes his pain, stress, and frustration by attacking a less powerful person. Typically, scapegoating brings the bully some momentary relief, right? People bully because it makes them feel better. It does not, however, effectively metabolize or release the pain, and scapegoating soon resumes as the bully's internal discomfort resurfaces. So this old dead dude named William Reich, in his brilliant book, The Psychology of Fascism, explains how scapegoating occurs on a continuum that stretches from the persecution of the targeted child by a bullying parent to the horrific scapegoating of the Jews by the Nazis. In especially dysfunctional families like Carol's, the scapegoating parent often organizes the rest of the family to also gang up on the scapegoat. Carol discovered a great deal about her early childhood from watching home videos. Her parents were so narcissistically oblivious that they unabashedly recorded many incidents of Carol being verbally and emotionally abused by them. This was unusually in the background. This was usually in the background of recording of the performances of their favorite child, her older brother. Severely narcissistic parents are rarely embarrassed by their aggressive behavior. They feel entitled to push to punish a child for anything that displeases them, no matter how unreasonable it might appear to an impartial observer. So Carol's parents started in on her early by disdainfully blaming her for soiling her diaper before she was even one. By the time she was three, she had been so frequently punished for making noise that while talking and playing, while talking and playfully exploring her house, that her constant state of fear generated an ADHD-like condition in her. Carol's large backyard was her refuge, where she could play with great gusto. She would climb, running, cavorting, and building and ransacking villages that she made with her toys and leaves, grass, sticks, and stones. She would busy herself from breakfast until supper, often forgetting to come in for lunch, which she thought in retrospect made life even easier for her mother, who never called her in to eat. One family video from this time was the straw that broke the camel's back of Carol's denial that her family was abusive. It showed her playing a game where she would repetitively smack herself hard on the hand and call herself a bad girl as she wobbled around the living room, touching various knickknacks. There was a considerable amount of footage that showed her parents and siblings roaring with mocking delight in the background. When contempt replaces the milk of human kindness at an early age, the child can feel humiliated and overwhelmed, too helpless to protest or even understand the unfairness of being abused. The child eventually becomes convinced that she or he or they are defective and fatally flawed. Frequently, one comes to believe that they deserve their parents' persecution. When Carol was 4, she accidentally fell out of a second-story window, and accidentally is in quotations. A few years later, she stepped out into the street in front of a car and was knocked to the ground. As an adult, she was convinced that both injuries contributed to her extremely painful early-onset scoliosis. She also believed that she was in so much pain that she was unconsciously trying to end her life. Fortunately for Carol, school eventually offered a glimmer of reprieve. A kindly third-grade teacher perceived her intelligence 
and praised her enough that she would soon become an excellent student. Unfortunately, the terrible anxiety that she lived with 24-7 soon morphed into an obsessive-compulsive approach to schoolwork. This, in turn, later manifested into a life-spoiling perfectionism and workaholism. Carol's older brother, Bob, the favorite and the hero of her parents, was not molded with fear and rejection like Carol. But before I tell you a little bit more about Bob, I want to explain the four roles in a dysfunctional family. This isn't in the book. It might be, actually. But off the top of my head, the four roles of the children in a dysfunctional family are usually the hero child. That's the straight A's kind of thing. The face of the family that looks good. The clown. That's the kiddo who can crack a joke, make everybody laugh, that kind of thing. The scapegoat, which I described already. And, oh, what did I say? I said the clown, the scapegoat, the hero child, and the last is the lost child. That's the one that kind of stays in the background, doesn't cause any trouble, doesn't say anything to upset anybody, that kind of thing. So back to Bob. Bob, the recipient of his parents' narcissistic expectations, was shaped into a multidimensional achiever by their withdrawal of approval for less than perfect performances. So he was given tidbits of praise for outstanding accomplishments that would reflect positively on his parents. He was also enlisted to further scapegoat Carol as time went on, outdid his parents in tormenting her. I believe there is an epidemic of sibling abuse that afflicts many dysfunctional families. Siblings in such families can traumatize the victim, scapegoat as severely as the parents. In families with checked out, disinterested parents, they can in fact be the chief sources of trauma. This is especially true in our culture where emotional neglect of children is rampant and where parents are routinely advised to let the kids, quote, work it out themselves. But how does a child who has half the strength of his older sibling work it out and stop him or her from tormenting them without the aid of a stronger ally? Bob himself did not escape the pathological influence of his parents. Scapegoating became a habit for him, and he developed the narcissistic's sixth sense for identifying others whose families had been had victimized and used them as targets. Bob, hurting from his parents, using him and holding him to perfectionistic standards, grew up to become a full-fledged narcissist and control freak. He aggressively tried to mold his loved ones as he had been molded and was working on whipping his first wife into shape at the time of Carol's therapy. Let's go back to Carol, okay? As an adolescent, her trauma was painfully reinforced by her surrounding community who so admired her brother's accomplishments that they joined the family in pathologizing Carol as the quote-unquote bad seed. Unfortunately, things deteriorated further for Carol as an adult, even though she had seemingly escaped from the family. Carol remained symbolically enthralled to the family by getting ensnared with narcissistic people who were just as abusive and neglectful as her parents. This is a well-known psychological phenomenon, and it is called repetition compulsion, 
or reenactment. So repetition, compulsion, or reenactment is what it's called. And trauma survivors are extremely susceptible for it. And it does go into a little bit more explanation later on in the book. But my understanding of this phenomenon is basically that we gravitate as human beings towards the familiar, not necessarily the most comfortable, but the most familiar. A third child I want to mention, Maud. Sorry for the barking. So Maud was born two years after Carol. By this time, her parents were worn out from incessantly molding Bob and Carol. Having whipped Bob and Carol into hero and scapegoat shape, they had little use for Maud. They did not have enough energy or interest left to whip her into anything. Maud became the classic lost child and was left to her own to raise herself. She soon discovered food and daydreaming as her sole sources of comfort. However, because Bob also enjoyed using her for target practice, she stayed in her room as much as possible. In retrospect, Carol also thought that Bob was molesting Maud. She hypothesized that these two factors contributed to the fact that Maud could not tolerate the various nurseries and preschools in which her mother tried to dump her. Over time, Maud numbed out into a low-grade dissociative depression and felt extremely anxious and avoidant whenever she was in a social situation. At four, an eccentric aunt gave Maud a television for her room, and she was soon entranced. She was forced to develop an attachment disorder in which she bonded with TV rather than a human being. Sadly, she is still lost in that relationship living on disability in an apartment cluttered with an enormous amount of useless hoarded material. Poor parenting creates pathological sibling rivalry. That's the next section, and I want to read that. It's the very end of chapter one. So like many children in complex post-traumatic stress engendering families, Maud could not turn to her siblings for comfort because her parents unconsciously practiced the divide-and-conquer principle. Her parents modeled and encouraged sarcasm and constant fault-finding among the children. Moreover, interactions of cooperation or warmth were routinely ridiculed. Sibling rivalry is further reinforced in dysfunctional families by the fact that all children are subsisting on minimal nurturance and are therefore without resources to give to each other. Moreover, competition for the little their parents have to give creates even fiercer rivalries. Two years later, Sean was born. At first, it seemed as if he was destined for the same lost associative destiny as Maud, but as he matured, he fell into the role of the gifted child, as described by Alice Miller in her book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Sean's inborn gift coming into this life was his compassion and his sense that if he studied his mother enough and figured out what she needed, he could provide for her needs. This would sometimes calm her down and make her less dangerous, bitter, and sarcastic. Over the years, Sean honed his skill and could almost clairvoyantly anticipate her sore spots, moods, and preferences. Sometimes it seemed he knew what she needed before she did, and with practice, he became adept at diffusing her anger and sometimes even gaining morsels of her approval. Synchronistically, his mother realized she was getting old and that her alcohol ravaged husband would likely precede her. Not wanting to be alone, she exploited his compassionate nature and primed him for domestic service for as long as she would need it. Sean remained living in the home until his mother's death, released him from the emotional captivity, 
at the age of 29. This was the codependent enslavement that gets explored a bit more in Chapter 7 of the Pete Walker book. So a friend of Sean's, who knew all the sibling as adults, marveled that it seemed as if each had different parents. Finally, it is also important to note that the scapegoat role does not fall exclusively on the flight type as it did with Carol. It can be bestowed on any one of the four Fs, four F types, depending on the given family. The scapegoating role can also shift over time from one person to another, and each parent or sibling may choose a different scapegoat. So in chapters six and seven, it really goes into some of the four F's corresponding defensive structures in a bit more detail. And they'll also help navigate what your own 4F defense response is, if you have one, and help you address any issues that are more specific to if you have complex post-traumatic stress. So I want to plug a program real quick. There is this program, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Other Dysfunctional Families, where a lot of folks, their feelings and thoughts were judged as wrong or defective. And so if you want to be heard, you might check out that program. It's adultchildren.org. It's a totally free, contribution-based, nonprofit, 12-step program. They have a secular side. They have a religious side. They have LGBT plus meetings. They have BIPOC meetings. They have all sorts of meetings online, in person, on the phone. Highly recommend checking them out if you come from an alcoholic or dysfunctional family. And there's this thing called the laundry list that you could also read before you just jump in, go into a meeting or something. Look up the 14 Traits of an Adult Child by Tony A. And if you relate to any of those, you might check out adultchildren.org. So I do hope you all enjoyed today's episode about the four F's. Like I said, this comes from the book Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. If you enjoyed the episode and you want to contribute to what I do here, you can click the button on the website. Remember, I appreciate each and every one of you simply for existing.